Yeah, and, and I don't want to correct the author either. And so, and, and I also wanted to steer away from uh, one of my heroes, who's uh, George Washington Carver, mm-hmm. Dr. Carver. Um, because if I had gone down that rabbit hole and I'm stopping myself at the edge, I would spend the whole time dealing with that. So I re- and my point is, I remember distinctly in your book, uh, you recounting uh, his story and the fact that he was on to everything that you're talking about. And he was sort of the, the, the father uh, in a way, but also your book was brilliant in terms of how it tied all kind of stuff together, whether it was I-Day uh, and, and Dr. Zolo and, uh, of course, uh, Olivia Watkins and all of that, right? So also what your book did to me is like, damn, we're all the same people. Mm-hmm. Here we are. We're all related, uh, Akilah. So that's your third time, <laughs> right? So Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that's what the book really reinforced for me. So can you kind of talk a little bit about Dr. Carver and the challenges he had in terms of trying to get even the folks at Tuskegee mm-hmm. to... Uh, embrace composting and natural systems and how important he was in terms of the degradation that had occurred in the South because of monocropping, particularly around cotton. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, huge shout out to uh, Dr. Monica White and uh, Leah Penniman, um, whose books, uh, Dr. Monica White's book is called Freedom Farmers, and uh, Leah Penniman's book is called Farming While Black. And, and they, those two books really are what made me aware of Dr. Carver's work um, in, in this particular arena. I had heard the story about him doing something with peanuts, <laughs> you know, right. in grade school. Right. But and, and thanks for mentioning them. They're, they're two dear, dear friends of mine, too. So uh, I appreciate you giving them a shout out. Thank you. But go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. And I, you know, and I credit them at reading their work. I, that was part of kind of recognizing, you know, where do we look for leadership in regenerative agriculture? And the, you know, the huge aha moment for me, and I'm late to this party, but that led to, you know, working on this book is, is recognizing that Indigenous communities, communities of color, global indigenous communities, these techniques that are now coming under this umbrella of regenerative, these have been in these communities for hundreds, in some cases, thousands of years. And, you know, not only were these ways of practicing agriculture commonplace in Africa, in North America, in Asia, you know, prior to colonial processes, but they've also been honed as strategies of resistance and survival in the face of colonial processes. And so for people who are experiencing an extractive agriculture as extractive of them and of their communities, these forms of of articulating an alternative, clearly, they've been going on continuously. And I think George Washington Carver is a great example of that. Because he he arrived at Tuskegee in, I think it was 1896, late 1800s, um, as the sort of founding faculty member of the agriculture program. And he had this huge portfolio, which just like terrifies me hearing this today. He was teaching six classes. He was running the extension program. He was running the student farm. And then he was also like getting like random questions about how to manage the grounds of Tuskegee. <laughs> he was like, oh, right. he was doing research. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I complain about my job description, uh, but he was, he was doing it amazingly. And 
interestingly, when he started at Tuskegee, he had been trained in basically biological fertility. So at that time, like the highest authorities at the USDA, there was this guy, Knapp, who had written this, like, you know, the Bible on how to manage fertility on your farm. And it was compost, cover crops, mulch, things that we think of today as like organic or regenerative or agroecological, they were mainstream in the late 1800s. So when Dr. Carver started, he was he was doing what other scientists in his community were doing. But very quickly, in the early 1900s, as commercial fertilizers started to become available, and there started to be private companies manufacturing them, and they were very tightly tied into the land-grant system, a lot of other scientists got really enamored of you know, oh, we're going to do this with technology and, you know, better living through chemistry. And basically, pretty much the whole like agricultural science profession got on this bandwagon of commercial fertilizer and eventually synthetic chemical fertilizer. And Dr. Carver was the first to say, I think this is the wrong direction for agriculture. And part of the reason that he could see, I think, with that vision was the fact that he was deeply committed to serving his constituency, which was black farmers in the immediate arena of Tuskegee and throughout the South, many of whom were sharecroppers, some of whom had, had sort of just gotten on their land, but for whom purchasing commercial fertilizers meant going into debt to either white planters or white you know, store owners who were deeply connected to planters. And he understood that for him, like the whole idea of doing technical assistance in agriculture was to support economic liberation among Black people in the South. And if he was recommending that people buy fertilizers that were going to put them in debt, that wasn't going to serve his mission. So he did all this like groundbreaking research on compost at his facility at Tuskegee. And he explored cover cropping as well, but he loved compost because he could see around him in the area where those materials could be gathered from and that farmers in that area had access to them. And he articulated a principle that that got picked up by organic and regenerative later, which is that if you have a low input system, you have more economic freedom. You're not tied into whatever the dynamics are that are, you know, driving the global economy or that are sort of, you know, driven by folks who are, you know, have decision making power and are, yeah, wealthy and powerful. And so uh, and then by virtue of the fact that he was doing those experiments and, and watching how how they played out, he then also recognized and wrote in a letter to Booker T. Washington, I think, in 1911, hey, you know, these commercial fertilizers, they work well for a little while, but ultimately, if we're not putting organic matter into the soil, we're undermining the long-term soil fertility. So because he was sort of seeing this side-by-side -side comparison playing out in front of him, and he was one of the first, he could articulate that principle as well, which I think, you know, it was decades before the organic movement really grasped that. Thanks for that, Liz.